What's up, y'all? It's Zach and I and listen here. Y'all know what we try to do. We're trying to build, inspire, encourage, empower, all on a platform that affirms black and brown experiences in corporate America. And it's interesting because as I came up, just kind of coming into myself as a professional, I didn't see a lot of people that look like me in consulting. I didn't see a lot of people that look like me in human resources either. But when I would come across someone who looked like me doing something I wanted to do, it gave me encouragement. It gave me a stronger sense of of hope that I could do it, too. And so it's with that that we're really excited to talk to you all today about and bring you another entry, actually, into our See It to Be It series. So the next thing you're going to hear is an interview between Amy C. Wanniger, a guest on the show, a member of the team and the author of Network Beyond Bias. And a leader who just happens to be an ethnic minority. In fact, yo, sound man, give me some air horns right here for my leaders. Yo, and give me some more air horns right here for the See It To Be It series. (laughs) Catch y'all next time. I know you're going to enjoy this. Peace. So, Barrington, thank you for joining me today. I am so glad to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And you are a journalist and specifically a journalist within black media and black reporting. And so I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you got into journalism. What about it appealed to you? Um, I've always been since I was like four years old that I wanted. Um, I was always fascinated with words, fascinated with the concept of, put in thought deeper. And so um, I knew that I wanted to write. I didn't know it was going to be journalism. So I went to, went to um, Miami-Dade Community College and Florida State. I did three years, like three and a half years of international relations. And then it was like, why am I even doing this? So I said, I need to find something that I, that I, could, that I was going to enjoy and that I, I was hopefully going to get paid for. So I um, went to a new small newspaper that was in, in Tallahassee called the Florida Flambeau. Tallahassee had like the first hurricane in its history, recorded history like in the, it was, in, it was like in 80, 84, like in 84. And I had a friend who went out to the Cape because he'd never experienced a hurricane. He almost got blown away. So I wrote the story. And when I brought it back, the guy said to me, I don't think, I don't believe you wrote this. So I, uh, I, I told him, I'll sit in the, in the office. You, you give me a topic to write. I'll find people and do the research and do a story. And that's what, when I did that, he was like, oh, well, I guess you really wrote it. Wow. So, <laughs> so I'd work for them in the, in the, in the evenings and I, Public relations always paid more, so I've always gone back and forth between public relations and journalism. So I, I uh, got a job with Department of Labor, Florida Department of Labor, as a as a, a writer. So I worked for them in the morning and worked for the newspaper in the evening. Finally got to a point where I got a job with the Tallahassee Democrat, which is the main paper in Tallahassee. And uh, I've been doing that for 34 years. Um, it's only been... In the past, maybe 10 years that I've really begun to focus on. And I didn't even, it wasn't even intentional. I, I, I kept on pitching my stories 
and pitching ideas and trying to get a foot in, a leg in somewhere. Because it really is about who you know. Um, you have lots of talented people running around who nobody knows about, who can't get a leg, a foot in the door, and that type of thing. So um, you have to first be persistent. You, you know, my, my sister said to me, I couldn't do your job because you always have people telling you no. Don't, no, I'm not interested in talking to you. No, get out of my face. No, I don't like the media. And I said, rejection is a part of what I do. So you gotta have thick skin and you gotta be persistent. And every now and then you have to find an angel. Because I went to the Democrat. I sent in applications seven times. And they told me no seven times. And the eighth time I went in and I said to the managing editor, I need for you to give me a chance because I need, because I, I was getting ready to get kicked out of the job at the, at, um, at the other state agency I was working for because I was, I was really clashing with the, with the guy who was my boss. And he, he said, give me some of your stories. He called me back and he said, I believe that I'm going to give you a chance. And that's oh. how I became a journalist. That's wonderful that you had somebody in your yeah. corner that believed. So in- I've been, I've been, yeah, I've, and I've been fortunate that way. I've met people who, who see something and who have, um, have got, you know, they've, they've gotten an opportunity and they're, they're paying it forward. So, um, so yeah. And if you, you know, for, for the young people who might be thinking about doing this, you got to read you got to read everything. You got to read every day. You got to read incessantly to keep up with what's going on. Of course, you know, in this digital age, watch the news. I don't like American news because there are 204 countries in the world. And most times you don't hear anything about the ones, particularly ones, you know, countries in Africa, um, African, African countries are countries with people who aren't white, unnecessary drought or famine or a war, and there's so much more. Like, you know, one of the things that, that um, has been news that isn't really news here is that 10 of Africa's 54 countries have the fastest growing economies in the world. Africa is the youngest continent in the world. The young people, young people under, I think under 18 is the highest of any continent in the world. So they're the future. And these, these young people, in a lot of cases, are doing with much less than people do here. And they're doing fantastic things in technology. My job has always been to let, to let people know what's going on in the world, why it's important, why they should care, especially black people. So I write, I, I used to write for seven newspapers. I'm now down to four. I don't know if you know, last week, more than a thousand people got fired from yeah. BuzzFeed and um, Huff, Huffington Post and Gannett. And yeah, so- I was gonna ask you about that. We went from an on, or from to, a 24 hour news cycle to an on-demand news cycle. And I think journalism yeah. has seen a lot of disruption yeah. in the last 10, 20 years. And I think I'm, I keep on thinking I'm crazy as hell because why am I still doing it? But I lo- it's, it's what I love. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've been in, Several, several instances where I've been in, in a crossroads in my life and I've always been like, I don't know what else I want to do. So 
I'm still, I'm still pursuing. And you find different ways. I write for, I, I do web content. Mm -hmm. I write speeches for non, for nonprofit CEOs. Um, I, I got married a month ago and my wife is a filmmaker and she's into all this other stuff. She has a radio show on um, WPFW. So we did our first co-hosting thing last week. Oh, it was fun. Pretty cool. I was scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> But we're gonna we're gonna do we're, we're gonna do that and so so you know you just gotta find ways to you gotta adapt adapt or die mm -hmm. so I'm adapting um, always looking for opportunities the thing is is that when you put in the work and you're able to attain a certain level of excellence if you want to call it that and you show consistency in what you do people are gonna see it mm -hmm. now I don't need to be I don't need to be like some like um, one of them dudes in New York, like on NBC and that type of stuff. I, I'm, I, I don't like the limelight. I've always just been content to kind of be in the background and do what I do. So that, that's, that's what I've been doing. That's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So can you tell me about a story um, or the impact of a story that you're particularly proud of in your career? I got called by a lady who's a, program coordinator for the College of Health, um, Allenberg College of Health in um, or Health Communications at USC in California. And she said, you know, we're looking for some fellows. If you have a good idea, give us an idea. And if we, if we like it, we'll, you know, give you a stipend and bring you out for a week to talk to other fellows and learn some things, how to develop and, and push your, your story. So um, gentrification has been ravaging Washington, D.C. and the surrounding areas. Um, we've seen uh, people like me who are medium income people, middle income people. We can't afford to live in D.C. You know, uh, $5,000 rents, million dollar houses, $800, $900, one million dollars for a house, for a regular, a regular house, nothing and, you know, not, nothing fancy and that type of thing. And so um, it's a phenomenon that is, that is, um, has raged across the U.S. San Francisco, Oakland is out of control. You know, wherever people are living in Silicon Valley, um, you have the techies making, making millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars and they can afford to live and other people are living in their cars or living on the street or having to find somewhere else to live. I've moved about four or five times in the Washington, D.C. metro area because it's like a ripple. Mm -hmm. I lived in a place in a community called in Hyattsville. And five years ago, it was about maybe six or seven hundred a, a month for rent. When I left, it was thirteen hundred a month. And so and that's the type of stuff that we're dealing with. I have a friend in, in Indianapolis and she's always like, come on out because at least you can afford a house out here. That's exactly the, exactly I what I was thinking. Yes, because yeah, I live in yeah. Indy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I did a three-part series on the health effects of gentrification on displaced DC residents, and um, have, it's gotten a lot of buzz. Uh, I went to a friend's play. The play was about gentrification, and the director asked me to come up and talk to and field questions from. From the audience about 
the, you know, about my, my stories, my research and the effects. Uh, I was invited to um, Anacostia Smithsonian Museum to, to give a presentation about it. And, you know, it, it's, it's just something that is on people's minds and people are living through the experience. So um, I don't know that, that, I think the greatest thing that reporters love is when you do a story and there's a policy change, the, the policy makers or the elected officials see it. And it hasn't gotten to that because there's so many moving parts and it's so complex, but it's one that I'm, I'm very proud of. It took me, eight, I thought it took me six months, it took me 18 months to, to do it. I think I, I interviewed about 30 people. I've, I read about a hundred stories and research papers and everything. It, it took forever. But um, I'm very proud of, of what I did. That's wonderful. Yeah. So would you liken the the health effects or the, um, and pardon me if, if there's ignorance in this question, mm. but it almost sounds like a refugee situation, like what we're seeing in other parts of yeah. the world. Yeah, it is. It is because um, D.C. has lost about 60,000 residents in the past maybe five years, long-time residents, native Washingtonians who've had to move because they couldn't afford it. Um, the, uh, I've talked to researchers and um, scientists, and they talk about the fact that the stress and anxiety of trying to find somewhere to live, the stress of trying to find the money if you, if you decide to stay there, the, the clash of cultures, because D.C. used to be 72% black, it's now 49%. And the folks who are coming in are mostly white, mostly young, mostly young. And the biggest complaint that residents have is that these folks come in, they've come in, they want to change the names of streets. They want to change the name of, names of communities. They want to erase and whitewash um, the, the history that is, that is D.C. So that has been... Uh, that has been problematic. Um, for example, let me give you an example. Um, it's a common thing in D.C. where black people live to sit on the, on the stoop, especially in the summertime when it's hot. These guys are calling the police because they don't want them sitting on the stoop. On Sundays, it's always been a wink and a nod that if people were going to church, you could double park in front of the church instead of having to park down, you know, a mile down the road. Mm -hmm. They've been calling the police to to move people's cars. So there's a, a disconnect and a lack of respect for the folks who've been there before. Um, and economically, I mean, the the D.C. government is have, has a bunch of programs to help firefighters, teachers, and other middle-income people to stay in D.C. because without, you know, things like HBAC, which is a housing program where you can get like $10,000 to, for a down payment and extra money if you, if you live in D.C. So there are different things that they're trying to do to get people to, to stay. There were folks, there were cops and fire department people who live in West Virginia who drive and New Jersey who commute to work which to me is crazy. That's ridiculous. So think, about yeah. the best, think about the wear and tear. It's just, it's just nuts. And, um, well, and I mean, everybody, I, I think there's some consensus that if you want effective 
um, law enforcement in your communities, law enforcement yeah. needs to come from and reside in those communities, yeah. right? It's and that's, not the kind of that's job issue. you want to outsource. Yeah, and that's that's been a big issue because folks complain. You know, these guys don't live here. These guys don't know who we are. These guys don't care who we are. They don't respect what we what we've done. You know, they just look at us as people, black people. Mm-hmm. More than more than not, likely to have committed a crime. Right. <laughs> And so that's uh, that's where they're coming from. So it's a it's a it's a multifaceted, complex, crazy issue. And as long as money is a god of this country, it will continue. Because you know, in the same way that we're looking at, like I worry about automation, AI automation, man versus machine. After a while, you know. People, people need to start trying to figure out what are we going to do when automation takes over because it's much cheaper. Mm-hmm. So they're either outsourcing jobs to China or overseas or Mexico or it's, it's AI. So folks who've been working their whole life and don't know any other paradigm are at a point where you ain't going to have a job. Mm-hmm. And I, I read a piece um, last week that said that um, the corporate so-called brains of, of this country are saying that they only have enough money to pay for a quarter of retraining that people are going to need if they if they want a different type of job. And so it's going to fall on who? The taxpayers. That's right. As it Over. always does, so, right? Yeah, so they have made choices in, and done things to ensure that they continue making money. Mm-hmm. And we are not, we're not benefiting from a lot of that, but we're going to end up paying for them and for me the outrage of those types of issues are things that drive me to write certain stories i did a story recently about the fact that most people can't live most people have to have two three four jobs in order to make to make a living in in order to stay above the water what does that do for your family what does that do for relationships what does that do for you in terms of your health it's crazy Mm-hmm. You know, so um, th- so those are issues I explore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. So, do your assignments come from uh, the newspapers that you work for, or are you out there kind of figuring out what it is that interests you and what you want to write about? It's a mixture. Mixture. Okay. I'm always reading, talking to people, looking at stories, and looking for uh, unusual angles. And, and in several cases, I have um, the type of relationships with editors who they'll call me and say, can you do this story? I want you to do this story. So it's a mixture. That's excellent. Yeah. So what's different about working for or pitching to um, black media outlets as opposed to kind of the big corporate, you know, white media outlets that, that uh, most people see on TV? Um, I think that one of the problems that we have, I always, um, criticize mainstream, what I call corporate media, Mm -hmm. because they'll send a reporter to Amy and say, Amy, you have a corporation with 10,000 people and you only have three black people in, in, uh, you know, in your entire organization and woe is me and, and how could you do that and blah, blah, blah. 
And the exact same thing that they're criticizing other people for, the exact same things going on in journalism. Mm -hmm. um, I see different figures. Um, it might be 10%. I think it might be less than that. 80% of newsrooms do not have a person of color, uh, Native American and Asian, a black person, a Latino, at all. All white men. And the problem with that... How, can, a, they, how can they tell stories that they don't know exist or that they can't arrogant. understand? They're arrogant because they think that they know. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. I worked for the Washington Times when I came to D.C. in 96. And I went out on an assignment and came back and I saw a group of guys laughing and joking. And so I walked over there. And there was a picture of a black man in handcuffs. And they were talking about what a fantastic picture it was and, and the quality of the picture. And, the da -da 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 -da. and I said to them, have you thought about the fact that you have a black man in handcuffs? Why isn't it a white boy? Why isn't it someone, some other person? I said, all you're doing is perpetuating a negative stereotype because all of us are criminals. And they were like, <gasps> they hadn't thought of that. So you need women and you need people who don't have the same cultural experience to be in the room when they make, you know, because usually in, in larger newsrooms, you have um, meetings twice a day, news meetings twice a day to figure out what stories you, they're going to put in the paper next day. That process in itself blew my mind because the arbitrariness and the randomness of the way that they chose stories, I was like, whoa. It, it just, it just, and it, the thing is, is that they, they find stories and the, the angles of stories and the types of stories they do are stories that they feel comfortable with. If they're not comfortable, they're not doing it. Right. And my, and my thing is that as a journalist, my butt is supposed to be uncomfortable every day, mm -hmm. whether it's in the places that I go, whether it's the people that I talk to. I went to Baltimore to do a story after Freddie Gray had gotten killed by the police. And my editor kept on telling me, you need to go on the street, you need to talk to people. It was the best thing I did. Now, I know people for at all the papers that I've worked at who would not go into the quote-unquote ghetto or a rough neighborhood because they're afraid. I've been in... in in situations with civil disturbances where people were throwing stones and bottles at, at the media. <laughs> I've been in situations where, where they've sent me out for stories where people are shooting at people and you, you, you don't know, you, you know, you're crouching down because you may or may, you may get shot. You know, you talk to people who are like, I don't like you. I think that you guys are just a co like cops. Get out of my face. So you have to deal with a lot of stuff that you, you don't necessarily want to deal with, but how is he going to get the story? Right. Well, and it's oh, much more it's much more fun to cover the new menu at the country club. I guess. But it's but, not very interesting, is it? No. Yeah. How many times are you going to do that? <laughs> you know, and everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. I believe that everybody has a story and our and our responsibilities is to give them an opportunity. So one of the things that some of my friends laugh at is that every time I do a story, I, I interview an equal number of men and women. Mm hmm. Because I believe that we are not the same as women. We don't think the way that women do. And, and to me, they bring a special flavor and a sauce 
to any situation that men don't bring. Mm -hmm. so I want to hear what they're saying. And to me, it's a good balance when you have men and women. Because men, men will look at something one way and you talk to a woman and she has a completely different perspective. That you go, oh, I never thought of that. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a constantly evolving process. A constantly, a, it's, you know, you're constantly changing. I love that I'm always learning. Because I'll, I'll talk to people and I'll think, well, I don't know where this interview is going to go. And it just goes off a tangent and you go, oh, that may end up, the tangent may end up being the story. Mm -hmm. So you got to be flexible because some incident has occurred or something, you go to an event and you may be talking to someone and there's something that they say that you go, oh, that's the real story. So you may put us. You have to put aside what you what you came for, and and just pursue, go wherever you need to go with that. So that's something I've learned over my 34, 35 years as a as a journalist. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you, Barrington, so much for sharing this all of this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, in the couple of minutes that we have left, I'm hoping that you will finish a couple of sentences for me. Okay. The first is I feel included when. When I'm allowed to voice my opinion, when I am not ignored or overlooked. Yeah. And the second question is, when I feel included, I? I feel on top of the world. I feel like a human being. I feel like someone whose thoughts and ideas are valued. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This has been fun. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.